0: you're listening to a radio stockdale podcast podcasts that are inspiring interactive and feature various discussions of leadership ethics and law Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. Today's topic is the 2021 film, Onoda, 10,000 Nights in the Jungle. So this is a film that tells the true story of Hiro Onoda. Now I can almost guarantee if the name doesn't ring a bell, you are probably at least somewhat familiar with the story. He is one one of numerous uh, Japanese soldiers that held out after the war ended. Yes, he's probably the most famous. Yeah, as he held out and he was stationed in an island near the Philippines, Lubang Island. Yes, and he was there late 1944 through 45, and even after the war ended he still refused to believe he still fought the civilians even the civilians were at that point were still trying to communicate to him the war is over everybody's left like, you know stop yeah. Yeah. and then eventually the word reached back to japan even his brother i believe and other people came they didn't know exactly where he was but you can see in the movie they go to him in these areas trying to just reach to him like the war is over please stop and even yes. have his parents i believe come out and tell him. And he's still yes even that, even with that, he says, "Oh, they're you know they're brainwashed, or it's the Americans," and he still refuses to believe. And we see throughout the film it's going through. But it's until the early seventies that after a while, one of a Norio Suzuki, yeah, is a Japanese like adventure guy, kind of yeah. climbs around. A young man, he was looking for him, and he finds him. Yes, and he's and. Try he tries to tell him because interestingly enough we see back so at some point like I, said, I think in the, around the fifties or sixties they give him a transistor radio yes and he's listening to a Japanese station and it's you know he the, one of the first thing he hears I believe it was a John Lee uh, John Lee Hooker blues song yes and, but he still refuses because he hears like like news reports about the economy with U S yes. and Japan he thinks it's somehow code for like. It's no longer battles, but it's like wars of economics of yes something or he's
1: a... yes, he's managed to uh it's very from a philosophical angle. this is what really intrigued me about this film as it reminded me of a uh concept that is probably most famous uh uh most famously expressed by uh the Austrian philosopher Karl Popper who says um uh, he 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 wrote a, a justifiably very famous book that tries to demarcate science from pseudoscience or non-science. And uh, one of the things he says, I mean, he, he holds out as traditional examples of pseudoscience, things that aren't really science that maybe try to pose as science, astrology and Marxism. And the reason he uh, uh, believes them not to be scientific, even though they claim they are, is that. Both are belief systems that are such that uh, no matter what happens, there is some way or another to uh, interpret the facts as being consistent with the theory, right? Uh, uh, Everything under the sun verifies the theory. Uh, And he says uh, what differentiates that from science uh, is science purposefully sets out to create theories and hypotheses that are in some crucial observational or experimental circumstances falsifiable. You you make the observation and you go, darn, my theory is wrong, my hypothesis is wrong, I've got to throw it away, start from scratch. And uh, So he's, like I said, justifiably famous for writing many books that uh, kind of elaborate on that, but he also makes the point when he's doing this to, to say that Uh, um, no belief system is necessarily immune from turning into one of these non-falsifiable, verified-by-every-single-circumstance types of theories. And uh, he gives examples uh, typically out of the political realm, but um, we see this same thing happening with Anoda because uh, what's happened is at at the beginning of his deployment there, or actually, before that, during his training, um, unbeknownst to uh, the people that are training him, he's basically being trained in guerrilla warfare and intelligence operations. Um, but unbeknownst to them, as they're training him and setting him up to be a success in this regard, um, they're 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 planting the seeds of his ability to interpret every single thing as somehow. Um, Uh, verifying the fact that the war is still going on, perhaps in more subtle ways, like you said, economic warfare um, and uh, 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 kind of densely imbricated uh, propaganda warfare on both sides. Uh, I think it's very amusing. Uh, uh, In the film, they they do this, but if you read his book, he, he goes into great detail about this. We should mention that he wrote his own book. It was called No Surrender My 30 Years at War. Um, you can get that one at the Naval Institute Press. It's a great book. Um, but he goes into greater detail in the book about how he was able, and in hindsight, he looks at it and goes, wow, how could I have fallen into this trap? But uh, how he was able to explain things away, because as you mentioned, they leave a transistor radio for him. Um, interestingly enough, it's a Sony. Um, that, that little... Uh, Fact in the film is accurate. I mean, they did send, leave him a Sony trying to impress upon him the fact that Japan was no longer at war, was in fact an economic uh, kind of powerhouse, at least to, starting out to be one in the 50s and certainly by the 60s and 70s. Um, but that's not the only thing they did. They, they left him uh, newspapers, Japanese language newspapers. And they're trying to convince him, see, Life has gone on. the 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 war has been over since you know, August 1945. But he, because he has been trained to be uh, um, uh, very uh, aware of subtle signals sent to him as an undercover agent, essentially, he looks at those newspapers as being that sort of uh, cryptic signaling. So he reads the newspapers as being partially genuine newspapers. For instance, he's very perplexed by all the classified ads in them. Why would they go to all the trouble of faking classified ads while they're sending me these, uh, these uh, uh, coded messages in stories about sports events, right? There's one sports event where it was an American-Japanese baseball game. Well, he read that as code uh, that was supposed to be telling him uh, how the war was going on, the war he believed was still going on. You know, the the score between the Americans and the Japanese was somehow indicative of how much territory the Japanese still held in uh, Asia, uh, Southeast Asia and so forth. So what he he determined was they took actual newspapers and then uh, inserted the coded elements in the news stories for him. And he was supposed to figure out what these were, right? And we have that great scene in the film where he, when he's not yet alone, it's it's down to him and his friend Kokura uh, when they when they um, uh, uh, attempt to decode a message. Remember, and and it, it, they take the Japanese characters and they thought that there's some kind of code in here. We've got to figure out what this code is. So. Kakura says, well, what we need to do is rearrange them somehow, and then the code will magically appear. It's like an anagram, right? So they spend, in the film, it looks like hours trying to do this, and they rearrange them in a way that they think verifies what they thought was the case. Japanese government's trying to get in contact with us, tell us to continue with the mission. Our mission was to map every square inch of this island, and signal them periodically so that they know we're still here. So when the push comes, we'll be ready to, as it were, uh, 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 trip the trap uh, and help them when they land, right? So once you've, the lesson here is once you've kind of bought into that uh, uh, almost conspiratorial point of view, right? There is nothing, almost nothing that it will convince you otherwise. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the only, if you notice, the only way he's going to be convinced, he tells this kid Suzuki, who he humorously describes as a hippie kid in, in his book. Uh, but this, uh, this uh, he tells the only way I'll believe you He's not sure if he's also not an agent of the government or maybe an agent of the Americans trying to get him to surrender. He's not sure this guy ever. Fortunately for Suzuki, he has enough doubts that he doesn't just kill him. But uh, he says the only way I'll be convinced is if you find my commanding officer and he comes in person and uh, gives me the appropriate orders signed by the emperor, uh, then I'll believe you. But And that's what it takes, because all through this 30 some odd years, they have been able to explain away every single thing that we would take as uh, pretty uh, strongly confirming the fact that the, the war had ceased.
0: And he's a contrast typical, what we feel of the Japanese military mindset in World War II, I think. The two words you think of when you think of the Japanese military are the bonsai, the bonsai charges. We'll run at them with everything we got. We go down, we go down. Yes. And then kamikaze, the kamikaze pilots who they even specifically made planes to not even just fly and land, just fly it right into the enemy and it'll blow up even bigger than just a regular plane. Yes. So it's that just give your life. And if you give your life, you give your life or you do an honorable suicide this is, no, we're not doing that. Keep fighting no matter how much the odds. We're going to do guerrilla warfare and just never give up, even if all the facts are staring in your face that yes. the war is over.
1: Yes, and that, that that's, that's one of the unintentional things that his very effective training did because <clears throat> they basically said, you know, y- your duty, unlike most people in the Japanese military to fight to the death, uh, is to stay alive no matter what and continue with your mission, and signal, and signal, and signal. And they don't know, of course, when they're giving him this instruction that they are setting him up due to the relative isolation of this island. Uh, it's, it's across the bay from Manila, but still, it's kind of a remote and uh, mountainous and thickly jungled island, so it's a natural place. And he realizes this early on uh, It gives him an advantage in terms of being able to hide. Uh, so yeah um, and I think they do an effective job in the film of reflecting what he says is in his book as well about how difficult it was for him be- to uh, accept that unusual set of orders uh, yeah. because uh, he went through what would uh, what would have been normal basic training for Japanese uh, army junior officers before he went through this training for special operations. And he was imbued with that same uh, 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 fight till you die mentality, never surrender. Um, And it took a little convincing to get him to think otherwise. And they show that in the film, and he talks about that in his book as well.
0: Yeah, and his commanding officer should meet up was a man named Taniguchi. Mm-hmm. We find out when um, Suzuki later goes back to Japan to get him, he's no longer an officer. And one of the saddest parts of this, considering that this man is mainly responsible for Onoda not giving up the fight nearly 30 years after the war ends, he doesn't even remember the guy. Yeah. yeah and he told Onoda, I don't know who that is. And you don't, I still wonder when he actually does finally go over to Lubang and Onoda finally surrenders. Yeah. I'm not even sure if even then he remembers him.
1: Yeah, and uh, the book's a little bit different in that regard. Taniguchi isn't his directly superior officer. There was another guy. And uh, Anoda is uh, aware that that guy uh, probably did not survive the war. So he says, look, if if you go for, as it were, his boss, Taniguchi, I'll I'll, I'll believe him, too. So that explains that lack of knowledge of uh, uh, Anoda on his part. It's not in the film, Um, but what I found interesting about that um, uh, the the character of Taniguchi is they do accurately uh, show him as a bookseller. He's running a little ma and pa shop bookshop in Tokyo after the war, and that's that's spot on accurate and it's also accurate how they portray him as having left his military life behind himself and not wanting really to, uh, engage with it in any, any way whatsoever. So I wouldn't say it was necessarily his fault. He trained a lot of people. This was true. You have to remember this training was happening toward the end of the war. And at that time, the Japanese government and the army certainly knew that, uh, their best chance for, uh, victory was not conventional warfare it was going to have to be guerrilla warfare and those kinds of operations so a lot of guys actually went through that training and it would be a, probably a and, and it would be like a 6 month training and then you get your next set of guys and they go through for 6 months and your next set of guys and they go through 6 months and usually it's somewhere between 30 and 50 uh, men in each class. So it's not surprising that Taniguchi wouldn't remember him. He's been through quite a lot of students, but um, I think they do accurately portray the fact that he, he has the foggiest idea and he's a little bit shocked. Wow, this guy's held out. Um, but then you have that uh, scene at the end when they when they look at each other in the eyes and you see that respect. You know, wow, you really did take the mission seriously. You really did what we ordered and asked you to do. Um, that's a touching scene, I think.
0: But that does bring the point I do want, we have to bring up, because you've been talking about his book, but one thing that he gets a lot of heat for, rightfully so, in his book, is that he doesn't bring up the fact mm-hmm. that he, after the war, he killed numerous civilians yes. on that island. Yes. And it's, you know, these are people that are were no longer combatants. And I think even in the movie, they try to tell him that war, What war? The war is over. Yeah. And, the somehow the movie does say that sometimes he got into firefights so it's kind of hard to tell who fired first but yeah he got, he was pardoned but i do think
1: by the philippine government yes, yes. but
0: when, especially like if you've shown regrets for those actions you need to put it in your book and sort of admit this but when you admit yeah. that then it sort of feels because it is interesting cuz you know this was like a famous like not just in japan this when this when he was found and he finally surrenders this was Everywhere, and if you go on YouTube, there's probably 500 different History Channel on YouTube that have a video about his life. He became something of a celebrity. Yes, and it kind of like when you saw post World War II Japan 60s and 70s, you saw would see kind of the younger generation who may not even been alive when World War II happened, going to a more like everyone else in the 60s and 70s of the youth, more left wing. Oriented, but you had that reaction of the people who were alive who remember even pre-war, pre-World War II Japan, who saw Noda as a great reflection. One of them was uh, they made a movie about this guy. His name was Yukio Mishima. Uh-huh. He was an author. He even made a couple of short films, but famously, he in 1970 he he had his own private army and they tried to take over a military base in central Tokyo. And to overthrow the constitution and try to sort of restore the emperor back to power, nobody, people just threw him down and eventually he and his army committed suicide. Yes. But there was that feeling when they saw um, Anoda of this, oh, this is a guy who's going to bring back, you know, we say make Japan great again. Yes, yes, exactly right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And, you know, it's, it uh, it certainly is uh, symptomatic, I think. Uh, Anoda's, Choice to leave out the uh, uh, civilians he had killed out of his book, I think it, it was a. It's symptomatic, I think, of, of something you're bringing up: uh, Japan's reticence to come to terms with its history with regard yeah, to World War I believe
0: II. Even in his writings, he didn't refer to those civilians on that as people. He didn't view them as people.
1: Well, what you, the the sense you get, and you don't know if this is an after the fact rationalization and perhaps his trying to insulate himself from possible legal consequences. Um, But very often, how he does describe them is in terms of that conspiratorial uh, view he's got. He doesn't ever see any civilian as merely a civilian. He sees there, sees each one of the cases as uh, at least, there's a significant likelihood that they are undercover and uh, uh, doing the same kind of operations that he is doing on the behest of the Americans, the British, or the Filipinos, who who obviously were aligned with with the Allies. So when he sees these civilians, he doesn't ever quite see them as civilians, even though, um, in case... In a few cases, uh, they actually were, you know, yelling to him and t- trying to tell tell him the war is over. But what he, you have to remember, they're always raiding, right? They've been trained to raid, live off the land and so forth. So uh, it's more clearly shown in the book, but they would um, follow a, uh, a regular pattern of changing locations and raiding at those locations, taking... Uh, 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 animals for meat taking rice obviously for food as well um so naturally if if they're doing this and these farmers are trying to protect their stuff what are they going to do they're going to shoot at them right yeah. so he read that and, and his partners read that as being uh military action these guys why would they be armed otherwise if they're just farmers why would they be armed so they must be working for the Filipino uh, and the Americans. Uh, so I need to shoot back. And not only that, I need to destroy their crops. Not only to signal the Japanese that I'm still here and working, but to, uh, as, as standard military practice is, to uh, disrupt their, their logistics and make it more difficult to, to carry out. You can't You can't field an army if you don't have food. So he's got this all running around in his head. And I think that was part of the reason that uh, Marcos, the president of the Philippines at the Times, uh, decided to go ahead and pardon him. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is there were mixed feelings on the actual island of Lubang mm-hmm. um, because a lot of these people had been living with this guy for you know three decades and dealing with him, and he had taken uh, some of their family members, um, uh, killed them so naturally they they're not quite as uh willing to forgive um but it is uh like i said interesting uh nonetheless to you point out that he doesn't mention these uh interactions with civilians at all in the book uh, other than to say you know they would shoot at us and we'd escape with after having burned their rice or whatever he never mentions what we see in the film two cases where uh they injured one of these civilians or happened upon the civilian and eventually decided they had to kill them because they might inform the Americans in the Philippines and the Filipinos that they were there so technically speaking um, even if these were undercover people uh, as he assumed they were, uh, when they had them under their control, uh, Anado and his men had these people under their control, they were, by uh, definition, according to the Geneva Conventions, unarmed former combatants, right? Even though he's mistaken that they were ever combatants, right? But um, that being the case, technically speaking, he did commit war crimes. And if you go by the book, you have to hold him responsible for those war crimes. But again, the, uh, the power that would be responsible for adjudicating that would have been the local power, the Philippine uh, government, and they chose not to.
0: And you also wonder, because it does go into, particularly America and the Pacific War, their strategy of island hopping. How They they would just go from island to island, from the Philippines onward, Guadalcanal, mm-hmm. helping ways to cut off Japan supplies. When they get that, they hop to the next one. You, you, you always wonder if maybe America and Japan are somewhat culpable themselves, if they should have sent soldiers to this island, just making sure there were nobody remaining, making sure they surrendered, and then just move on to the next island? Yeah. Uh,
1: and good question. Don't know the answer to that. I do know that uh, in in the, in the larger scheme of things, the island of Lubang was minor. So you had the question of... Uh, of whether or not it was uh, uh, economically feasible to commit that level of uh, troops, like something at perhaps at okinawa, right the, yeah. the just thousands and thousands of troops and an armada, right and air cover and everything else. Uh, there's not unlimited resources, right? So they had to make uh, tactical decisions, strategic decisions on on where to locate things during the war and then after the war of course you've demobilized to a great extent so it'd be very uh uh, it wouldn't be cost effective then either um but you know they did try they did try to signal him and so forth and uh i don't know what else they could have done again because uh he had kind of fallen into that uh conspiratorial mindset and anything just about anything that they would have done short of pro- pro- uh producing Taniguchi, uh he would have been able to explain away as being some sort of a trap um but you know it, it, the island hopping strategy there really was no no other alternative right And uh, there were quite a few small islands uh, peppered throughout the Pacific. And uh, it would have been very difficult to try to cover all of them uh, with limited resources.
0: And we should point out, and we mentioned earlier, but um, even though he's the most famous, he was not the only one. There is Mm -hmm. a list, if you look at it, almost about 30 long of Japanese holdouts after the war. Now, I'm not sure if they were... They were as delusional as he was, where they kept inventing excuses to think that the war was going. They were more just hiding out, afraid to get caught or captured. But there was like it even goes. You wonder how much they held out. There was it's been unconfirmed, so this might have just been a hoax. But even in, there were reports in two thousand five hmm. of these men who were in their eighties who claimed they were privates in the war and they deserted and they head out in these mountains for decades and decades because they figured if they were caught they would have been shot for desertion yeah so it's interesting how like you said that mindset japan had of you know we're we're going to do everything we can because we believe surrendering is a form of cowardice that's why they didn't have many pow's during that time yes how that just sort of affects that mindset yes and you think of today the excuses he invents When you see a lot of reviews of this one thing a lot of people bring up is this idea of fake news that it's been a, a decade ago. I don't think that term existed, but mm-hmm. I think last six, seven years, it's been, yep. it's in the dictionary now. Yeah. So you keep thinking like he's, you know, he's, he's ha- just like we have people today who have their confirmation biases. Even if we are throwing facts and all this stuff in their face, that tells them you're wrong. And he's still saying, no, no, because this, because that he even says like, let the letter from his dad like oh we're not reading we shouldn't read it the traditional Japanese way yes we look at it horizontally and yes says, wait at this island
1: yes you're right and uh, that gets back to Popper's point right um, and it, the most amusing part of the film and the most amusing and I think honest part of the book uh, details those, ca- those cases and one is the letter but the others are the pains they went with the newspapers that were presented to them to uh, um, try to discern the true message underneath all the other stuff, because they felt like the true message was hidden underneath all the other stuff because they had to kind of get it through the Americans in some way or another and and let it pass so that the true Japanese intent would be there. Uh, It's very unclear what exactly he thought the true intent was, but you you see when they— uh when they during the rainy one of the many rainy seasons remember they're basically stuck in a shelter during the rainy season with nothing to do so there's that one scene where and this is accurately portrayed in the book as well where they they have drawn a map of the world right a map of the greater east asia of prosperity prosperity sphere and they've come up with an elaborate explanation of uh, why it is, it doesn't seem like there's that m- many military operations here uh, for a decade, but now all of a sudden we're seeing overflights all the time, right? And we know, we know, the the viewers know, the overflights were due to the Korean War first and then the Vietnam War second. And they're reading all these stories about the Vietnam and the Korean War and trying to figure out what's happened, Right. And according to them, Japanese Japanese are still in the fight, and they've allied themselves, interestingly enough, with the communist Chinese. And they are convinced that it's a, an alliance of convenience, and that the communist Chinese and the Japanese are fighting the British and the Americans, and... Uh, uh, They've managed to successfully kick out the French in Indochina, right? And so they've got a consistent explanation, like you said, um, for all of the facts that are presented to them. Um, And it is very hard to see how you could talk them out of it because of the isolated nature, right? Um, they're, They're still, even though there are newspapers and radio reports, which they're also constantly interpreting, as being coded. Yeah, I remember when
0: um, they're even late sixties. They're listening to uh, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now that part, I don't think actually, ever yeah, exactly. actually happened, but that was a great scene in the film, nevertheless. But, uh, um, they read that. And, and in the film, I, I like this. It said, well, the Americans are spending way too much money going to the moon. So this helps us, you know, yeah. right. And they're not putting it toward the war effort, so this will help us. Um, just like I said, an object lesson, as you as you said, uh, about the conspiratorial mindset and how it is able to read any news as fake news and as not being in line with uh, what they take to be the truth. Uh, again, a great example it's, of Karl mortis- Popper's concept of the non-falsifiable hypothesis.
0: Yeah, with the notice case, you said it's because of the isolation, but it's interesting is And today it's you isolate yourself with just people who will just confirm your bias. Yes. Who, if anything comes out, they'll have some sort of way to counter it. You'll believe that. Like, oh, I knew they were right all along.
1: Yep, yep, Interestingly enough, self-isolation in this case. These guys had an excuse. They were on uh, isolated, uh, densely jungled islands um, without the technology we have. Interesting.
0: Alright, anything, or are getting close to the end of my questions. Anything you want to bring up before we start signing off? Now, what's interesting how people, you hear this, people automatically think it's a Japanese film. But we do need to point out this, even though it's all Japanese actors, it is directed and produced. The director is French, it's mostly a French production company. The main reason why it is based on a French biography of Onoda by the author is Bernard Sindron. Yes. So it is interesting you're seeing that because, like you said, that this is like even if you don't know the name, you've probably somehow have heard of the story.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a lot of pop cultural references to him. Now, having grown up in the '60s and '70s, uh, I think of Gilligan's Island. There was a character I forget his name; it's been so long. But there was a character uh, who was supposed to be a stranded Japanese soldier on one of the episodes of Gilligan's Island, and and there there are other other pop culture references to these guys, too. Because like you said, this was a relatively common phenomenon um, due to the large expanse of the Pacific and the fact that these guys were on islands.
0: Right. And uh, since, you know, because it is interesting, you type in Onoda in YouTube, you will get 5 million, I said, videos of history. It's almost like they, it's, like it's say it's the mo- it, It's like, oh, it's the Internet's favorite story from World War II because it's been shared and discussed so many times. Yes, yes. It was making me think of, well, what's the next most famous, like, interesting tidbit that's been shared to death on the Internet? It's uh, the Battle of Castle Iter. It was near the end of the European theater in World War II. It was basically the U.S. and sections of German soldiers fought together against the SS. So it's, it's, that's, every YouTube video, you look, that's what U.S. and Germany fighting together in World War II? Question mark. Question mark and yeah. you're, you're intrigued and you got more and more. So yes. I'm feeling like now that they finally made a movie about Onoda, I can almost guarantee you at some point we're going to get a movie about this battle. Oh, probably so. And I'd be yeah. there to see it. That would be a good one, yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate the classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.podomatic.com. And for our next episode, we will be doing a double feature. We will be discussing the 1982 film Fitzcarraldo and the documentary about the making of that film, Burden of Dreams. So be sure to tune in next time for that one. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker.
1: And I'm Sean Baker.
0: Saying so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.